The Conspiracy Podcast contains adult language, suggestive themes, sexual situations, and discussions of some pretty horrific events. Basically, all the good stuff. Thanks for listening. Menacing manicotti, ominous orzo, terrifying tabamotelli, gnarly noki, terrifying tortellini, vicious vermicelli, agonizing annulati, spooky spaghetti, ghoulish garganelli. Welcome to Creepy Pasta! Hello, guys. Welcome to another special edition of Social Distancing Conspiracy, where we still record, but from more than six feet or so apart. I am one of your hosts. I'm Renee. Hello, I am Liz. You are hearing from me six feet and one inches away from Renee. Just kidding. (laughs) Our government mandated acceptable distance. It's actually like six miles, but fine. (laughs) I think so. I think so. Yes. Hi, it's me, Katarina. I'm here. (laughs) We're all still alive. We're all still alive. For for another day. Okay. So, (laughs) so to postpone postpone having to do research on our next subject, which is just going to um really i'm just going to be living in a in an esoteric magic hole for like a week when we do that um we're going to be doing another uh, a spooky spaghetti uh, episode which i'm very excited about y'all asked we delivered yes yeah every time we have said that we're doing creepy pasta we have at least two people in our DMs that are like, woohoo, yeah, woohoo. <laughs> so I feel like that's good. One of them is me DMing Liz, but the other person is definitely real. Hey, I get DMs. Maybe it's just because like it's my like people that I know that listen to it, but everyone loves it. Nobody DMs me. I sound too scary, I think. Yeah, I think you intimidate the kids. If you guys are um, overwhelmed with all of the um, pandemic talk that's literally coming from everyone's mouths and everyone's screens, just um, relax, sit back, turn your lights off, drink some tea with us, and uh, then you won't be able to fall asleep because you'll be so scared that you won't even think about the pandemic. Speaking of, what are you guys drinking right now? Because we didn't plan this, so we're all kind of drinking something different. Katie, what are you drinking? I am drinking echinacea tea and green ginger tea. Yum. 
you know, keeping that health up and also. There you go. Mm. Renee? Um, I am also drinking green tea with uh, lemon and ginseng. Delish. I love it. And I am having an iced matcha latte. Of course, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so crazy. We are still all drinking like similarly crafted beverages. Mm-hmm. I think that's funny. We're still connected. We're wow. still connected. Yeah. All right, so hopefully you have a cup of tea that you are drinking along with us. Um, if your tea is an old-fashioned or a martini, that's okay, too. Times are tough. Or maybe you're just sleeping on some spaghetti. I was not sipping mm-hmm. up spaghetti. I'm hungry. I know. Me, too. I'm going to have to snack after this. Um, so, Liz, do you want to get us started? I sure do. So... Uh, those of you who I talked to after the last episode were loving the body farm. I know at least one person who had to go online and read the rest of it. So um, I figured I would go ahead and give y'all the next chapter of that. I'm not sure if you guys were into it, but I was into it. Yes, I actually deliberately didn't read it because I was hoping you would cover it on the next one. Oh, well, here I am. Five seal delivered. Not dead <laughs> yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so a quick synopsis. Our sweet little friend, Brian Martinez, he wrote this um, for creepypasta.com. I did not write this and I do not own it. But he is a sweet little security guard in the middle of nowhere on a literal island where he does not have a car and there's barely any signal. And... In case you missed last week, he is a security guard on a body farm. So, (sighs) we left off at the end of his first shift. So, let's see what he's up to. All right. They asked me to go back. It was three days ago. I picked up tired and hungry on that dock. The captain had found me with a dying flashlight in one hand and a turned-off radio in the other. This time, I was the one who didn't say much. I just got out of the boat, drove home in a daze, and fell asleep in my bed. I spent a lot of the time since thinking about what I'd experienced on Twain Island, the rest of it applying to other jobs who didn't call back. I went back and I read what I wrote. It sounds almost ridiculous now like the ravings of a wild man, especially happening so soon after I woke up. The more I thought about it, the less real it seemed. As I was applying for other guard jobs, the guy who runs the temp agency called me to tell me the forensic anthropology facility had contacted them to ask about hiring me again. With no hesitation, I told him I had no interest in going back to that island. While I was at it, I thanked him for not warning me about the nature of their research. He swore to me that he didn't know. I didn't believe him. And he told me before I made up my mind that they were willing to raise their rate by almost 30%. I think they're tired of giving the free tour, if you know what I mean, he said. It's hard to argue with that kind of money when you're unemployed. There was still the whole matter of the disappearing body and the creepy laughter and the traces of death in the guard's office, which were three very good reasons to never go back. I couldn't exactly ask him about all that without sounding insane, 
So I asked them the next best thing. Did they have any complaints or things to say about the last time I was there? I asked. The way I figured, if a body got up and walked away on my watch, they might think I had something to do with it. (laughs) If they had any complaints, he said, I doubt we'd be talking right now. He was right, of course. The whole thing was feeling more and more like something I dreamed up. About an hour earlier, I had checked my bank account, which was getting grim, and now here I was saying no to a cushy paycheck. I thought of my friend's advice, how it was the easiest job in the world so long as you could manage the mental bit. Then I thought of my dad, who worked in high-rise construction for 30 years and once had to drive himself back to a job site after having his thumb sewn back on so he could finish out the day and get paid. Oh, wow. So God helped me, I went. A thought occurred to me as the boat captain drove me over to the island. What if the body had actually gone missing and they were luring me back to question me about it or even catch me in the act of doing it again? What if they wanted to replace the body? What if they'd gone to the cops but didn't have enough evidence to accuse me? My stomach was sinking and I looked over at the old guy at the wheel. He looked back at me with a funny look in his eye. Maybe it was something, maybe it was nothing, but it was too late to turn around now. When I got to the island, it was still bright out, which helped me get off the dock and onto land. And as I was interested to notice that no one had come to greet me when I had arrived, I took it as a good sign and went to track down Eric. It didn't take long. He was at the computer in the guard's office. I didn't think I'd see you around here again, he said with a laugh. Apparently, the boat captain told everyone how ready I was to leave when he pulled up the other day. It was a little embarrassing, but to be fair, no one had prepared me for the kind of shit that I had shown up for. Well, obviously, no one's going to prepare you. They're not going to be like, hey, welcome to your first shift. So there's about 50 dead bodies over here. One of them likes to walk around and scare people. Have fun. Okay, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, no one is going to tell you what the fuck you signed up for, but okay. Anywho. I could tell that he found it hilarious, but I could also tell that he understood where I was coming from. While we were on the subject, I asked him if he had ever heard anything weird on the island, especially on the night shift. He asked me what kind of weird. I don't know. Stuff moving, I guess. Voices. He got a soda from the fridge. Uh-oh. Don't tell me you're the superstitious type. That doesn't really fly here. As he chugged the soda down, I assured him I was a rational person, but he seemed skeptical. According to him, despite Twain Island being an island, there were still plenty of animals that lived there. Some swam over, others came over on boats or floating garbage. We've asked Dr. Christensen about animal control, but he says it would ruin the balance of nature, which is important for their data or whatever. I think he just doesn't want to pay for it out of his grant money. Also, are you telling me that possums are making boats out of trash? That's amazing. You have to admire their ingenuity. (laughs) Honestly, they're ambitious. They're like, I smell food and I know it's on that island. I'm going to just make a little trash raft. (laughs) I love them. It wasn't the first time I got the vibe that no one liked the doctor. After I finished catching up with Eric, he threw away his empty can and announced he was going to complete his final rounds before it was time to go home. I think he expected me to hang out in the office like he would if he could, so it surprised him when I headed out in the opposite direction. I wanted to reacquaint myself with the island and the interns. 
based on the look he gave me, he definitely thought I was a crazy person. The real reason for my walk was even crazier than he suspected. No one was working in the main clearing, so I used the privacy to check the cage where the body had disappeared or where I convinced myself that it had. At this point, I didn't know what to think. It had been an uneventful return so far, and I doubted I would get such a mild reception if they suspected me out of something as gross as grave robbing. So as you can imagine, I was especially confused when I saw the woman inside the cage, like she never left. She was less an inflated bag of maggots by now, more like skin and bones than the last time I'd seen her. Her rotting body was oddly comforting. Bernard the intern was standing at the other side of the clearing with a clipboard in one hand and a ruler in the other, checking on one of the other bodies. I don't know how long he'd been there, but when I turned to leave, he threw me a look too nasty to ignore. Instead of heading back to the office as planned, I went his way and struck up a conversation, something pointless about the weather which he stayed quiet through. When I was done with my bit, he not so subtly changed the subject. He asked me what my interest was in the female specimen, and the way he asked as I understood it what he was implying was disgusting. I didn't know how to answer him without sounding insane, so I told him I'd heard some sounds out this way last time, but when I came to inspect the site, there was nobody there. But what he said next made my legs go cold. Was it you that moved her? It took me a second. I said no, I definitely didn't. And I would have no reason to. I asked him why he would ask me something like that. I could tell he was hesitant. But after I persisted, he told me the photos hadn't matched up from one day to the next. Specifically, the positioning of the body. I asked him if it was possibly animals. The ones Eric told me lived on the island. The garbage writers. <laughs> garbage writers. <laughs> class. He tapped the cage next to him with his foot and looked at me to say, that's what these are for. What about gases, I asked, and all those things that happen to bodies when they decompose? Could that move a body? With no lack of attitude, he assured me that he knew which movements were natural and which ones weren't. If it was you, you're better off coming clean. I could see that he wasn't going to bend on this, so I told him it wasn't me, and if he didn't believe me, it wasn't my problem. So I went back to the guard's office, but I'd be lying if I said that our conversation didn't weigh on me for a long time after that. By the time Eric got back from his final rounds, I was in a dark place. My thoughts were spiraling down, and I was angry at myself for coming back to the island. I was giving strong thought to quitting and hitching a ride back on the late boat, and Eric could probably tell, since he was acting especially light and jokey, trying to improve the mood. I suspected it was less for me and more for himself, which he proved when he casually dropped off that he had some big plans for the night, which would be ruined if I didn't show up. At that point, Terry popped her head in for a few minutes to say hi and ask Eric a question about the alarm system. Before she left, she told me it was good to see me again. After she was gone, Eric chuckled and said how obvious it was that Terry was into me. Why do you think they asked you back, he said. <laughs> you were tired of giving the free tour, I quoted. There's other guys that could have asked, and she brought your name up like five times in the past three days. She said that you have kind eyes. Who else were they going to bring back? I didn't put much into what Eric said, but all my brain could think about was other things. It didn't hurt that Terry was pretty cute in a weird works-with-dead-bodies kind of way. The thought of asking her out distracted me for a while. Soon enough, I was alone. 
The boat came and left, and like an idiot, I didn't get on it. I spent the first hour, like the first night, on the internet, visiting the usual time wasters. But after a while, I started to think about what Bernard had said. To be honest, it pissed me off. This guy, this bug-looking prick, doesn't even know me. Wasn't even there that night. Yet he thinks he can throw around disgusting accusations? I'm pretty soon after that, I wasn't even paying attention to the screen. I was thinking about cornering Bernard in one of the more private areas of the woods and giving him something real to accuse me of. Oh, big macho guy, okay. I'm not an outwardly violent guy, but that doesn't mean I'm incapable of it. Something by the door caught my attention. Movement. Definite movement. I turned in time to catch a spot of darkness moving past the window, and for the second time that day, my legs went cold. The shadow was in the vague shape of a person. I'd like to say that I jumped out of my chair, flung the door open, and jumped on the intruder like a security guard. (laughs) But the truth is, I stayed as still as I could. I listened to the grass rustle, and I didn't move until the sound was gone. A minute later, I stood at the open door, shining my flashlight into the dark. And even though I didn't want to, even though I hated to admit it, I found myself surrounded by the very familiar, very strong smell of rotting corpse. My first instinct, and it would be yours too, was to step back inside and lock the door, radio the police, and shut myself in a broom closet until help arrived. But I also knew that dead bodies don't get up and walk around. That you're wrong about. You are wrong, my friend. <laughs> I pictured my dad. Wrong. You are wrong. <laughs> Have you ever seen Beetlejuice? What the fuck? No. <laughs> okay. I pictured my dad and what he would do in this situation if he was still alive. He would find whoever was screwing with him and jam his reattached thumb into their eye. My undetached one would have to do. Due to an overcast night, the woods were already black. The way the flashlight's beam pierced the night reminded me of footage of deep-sea divers. I moved quietly between the trees and toward the main clearing and strained to hear even the slightest sound of footsteps or movement in the woods, ahead or around me. But other than the wind and the ocean, I couldn't hear a thing. What made me the happiest, though, was finding the woman's body in its cage where it belonged. And even now, that sounds like an unbelievable thing to find relief in. And after a quick check, I discovered all of her roommates were in their cages, too. (laughs) At least at this site. Taking courage from that, I decided to finally do some proper rounds. There was a mystery on that island, something that the employees weren't telling me, and it was time I figured it out. I moved into the woods at a sharp angle. I moved into the woods at a sharp angle, aiming to reach the shore at a particular spot I'd seen with Eric the other day, a point at the island's highest where he said that you could see a small cave opening at low tide. The point itself didn't matter so long as I had a target, though something about the overcast night got me confused, not being able to use the moon or stars as a reference, and after a couple of minutes, I found myself turned around. As it turns out, the island is larger than I thought and very possible to get lost on. I tried to correct my path using the sound of the ocean, just kept heading towards the waves. But after a minute, I came into a clearing and was surprised to find that it was the same one I left a few minutes earlier. If I was a smarter man, I would have said fuck it and returned to the office. 
but my decision to find the answers had made me too stubborn to take the easy way out. That's your own fault. Instead, I turned around and headed once again for the same spot on the shore. This time, I made an even sharper angle and turn. There was absolutely no way that I could have ended up back in that clearing. The good news is, I didn't. The bad news is, I became completely disoriented by the night and the tree after tree after identical tree, and it wasn't long before I couldn't even tell which way the ocean was. The sound of waves coming from all directions, like they were inside my brain. Twice I came across body cages, but I didn't stop long enough to get a look at them. It was bad enough putting my back to them in the dark. Thinking about their dead eyes on me put some pep in my step. If you've ever been lost, you know the feeling of frustration and hopelessness it brings, how you kick yourself for being so stupid. You blame yourself for every mistake you've ever made. Whether or not you believe in God, you start making pacts and promises. If you just get me out of this, I promise to be a better person, or something like that. Even though you fully intend to forget everything that you said the moment that you're lost again. Or, I'm sorry, (laughs) the moment that you're found again. (laughs) Bottle up that feeling and let it loose on an island full of cadavers and you'll start to understand what went through my head in those woods. When I got really desperate, I started to notice the smell of rotting meat. With the breeze blowing so erratically through the trees, I couldn't get a bearing on which direction the stink came from. Whether it was following me or I was following it wasn't clear. Only one thing was, it was getting stronger. I didn't know if I should walk slower to keep from stepping in something or run away from something or someone pursuing me. As much as I wanted to check the trees, my flashlight stayed trained on the ground and thank God it did. Out of nowhere, I came across a body. A pair of purple feet sticking up from a patch of green ivy. It wasn't even marked with a flag, which I thought was extremely dangerous. And if it had been, the flag had fallen and disappeared under the vines. The body was muscular, definitely a man. And as I got closer, I saw it was missing its head and one of its arms. Flies buzzed on its freshly ruptured skin. Their whining voices got under my own skin, into my eardrums, and nausea bubbled up in my stomach. The taste of acid at the back of my throat. I threw up behind a tree. Doubled over, wiping my mouth clean, a stick snapped in the woods under weight, as if someone had just stepped on it. I straightened up and aimed my flashlight towards the sound of approaching footsteps and called out, Who's there? The beam of light found feet. Not the corpse, but walking feet. Feet wearing shoes, attached to legs and pants and a coat. You are contaminating my sight the bearded man said. I didn't have to ask him for identification. It was Dr. Christensen. The other guards didn't come this far inland. What are you doing here? To be honest, I'm a little lost. I admitted to him. This isn't the place to do that, he said as he walked over. I agreed completely. I told him I thought everyone had gone home by now. I'm one of the fortunate few who loves what he does. I get lost in my work. You, but okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure how the statement made me feel about the doctor. On the one hand, I admired his work, and on the other hand, a man who could get lost in dead bodies doesn't exactly make you feel comfortable. You missed the boat, I told him, but he shrugged it off. If I call for one, another one comes. Did you happen to walk past the guard's office a little while ago? His face shifted. Are you keeping track of me? I shook my head no. 
You worry about people trying to get onto the island. I'll worry about what they do while they're here. I nodded. There wasn't any arguing with a prick like this. He pointed me in the right direction back to the buildings. I thanked him and I went to leave. But the last second I turned around, there was something I needed to know. This really doesn't bother you? I asked, but his expression told me everything. He was tired of this question, and not just tired of it, but he was above it. I find it fascinating, not that I need to. The data I gather here will give police the evidence they need to catch countless criminals. Well, I guess I just can't get over the fact that they used to be people. Like this guy right here. Do you even know his name? The doctor no longer looked like he wanted to humor me. By any remote chance, do you happen to know why I asked you back? I told him probably because everyone else said no. Because I don't like to answer questions, he said. That's why I chose an island for my research in the first place. Hmm. That certainly wasn't a problem. I thanked him for helping me find my way. But by that time, he wasn't paying attention to me anymore. He was studying the headless man and taking down some notes. So I left without another word and headed in the direction which he said. It was surprisingly easy to find my way back after that. Within 20 minutes, I was standing in front of the open door of the guard's office. As I entered the building, I realized I didn't leave the door open. Stop it. I quickly used the restroom, washed my hands, and grabbed a soda. I threw the can in the garbage pail where it joined Eric's and a few others. It seemed as though they were more concerned with recycling people than they were aluminum. There was a big cork board hung up in the eating area with a bunch of random things tacked to it. Health notices, old flyers, a few articles cut out of medical magazines, but it was the photo that caught my attention. It was one of those unflattering pictures people love to take of each other at work. Messy hair and a few extra pounds only matter if it's a picture of you, right? It's a recent photo. Probably taken with one of the digital cameras they used to photograph the bodies and print out on the office printer. Yet I didn't recognize the guy in it. He was in fairly good shape, muscular, arms bulged against the short sleeves of his guard uniform. On his right arm, he had a tattoo of a green snake wrapped around a red apple. I thought back to the body in the middle of the woods where Dr. Christensen and I had talked. No cage, no flag, pretty muscular, missing the head as well as one of the arms, his right arm. I locked the door. There it is, the chapter. Oh, that's, of course the guy who runs a fucking body farm is going to be creepy as shit. Honestly, it's like, it's not enough that you're studying dead people for work, but like you're also killing your employees, so... There's that. I don't want that. What'd you say, Katie? I don't want that job. Yeah, like, I would never have gone back. He's crazy. Maybe his employee died of natural causes. Yeah, with his missing arm and his missing head. Yes. Yeah, it happens all the time. I mean, I just, (laughs) I naturally, I just assume that I'll lose an arm when I die. (sighs) all right friends well that was part two of the body farm if you can't wait until our next creepypasta episode which will just keep happening until we're out of quarantine 
<laughs> then um, feel free to go to uh, creepypasta.com and you can literally just search on the search bar on the body farm. I think it's the only one that pops up. It's pretty popular. It's got 10 chapters. So if we're still doing this for eight more weeks, you'll hear it all. I mean, I'm probably going to end up reading it tonight because I just love that story so much. Yeah, I think it's, it's really good. Very creepy. Okay. So this one is called There is Something Very Strange Going On With My Wife. It's written by Dark Cox. That's hot. Okay. I did not write this. Growing up, I always feared monsters. Even in college, which most would consider to be the time when you can first be called an adult, my greatest fears were the monsters under my bed, in the closet, or at the window. I would always tell myself how silly this was seeing as I was an adult at this point and I was still afraid of something I knew did not exist. That was until I met my wife, Natalie. But before I tell you what happened, let me elaborate on how I met my wife and how much she means to me. I met Natalie in college. I was a nerdy guy, yet she saw in me something that no other girl in my life had. She was an extremely kind person who always had the sweetest of intentions. As I spent more time with her, I realized how many things we had in common. To me, she was the most beautiful girl in the world. I could stare into her green eyes for the rest of my life. And that's what I chose to do when I proposed and we finally got married. Fast forward to married life. I am working now. While she is working on an online master's degree. Life is good. Life is actually perfect. Too perfect. Ever since we got married, I've told her everything. My deepest secrets, my deepest feelings, and most importantly, my deepest fears. I remember when I first told her about my silly fear of monsters. At first, she laughed it off. But over time, she noticed how I would sometimes shiver in bed, lying awake in fear. Being the sweetheart that she is, she would hold me and tell me it would be all right. My wife became my protector. She became the one to keep my fears in check. Her face became that of an angel to me, one that would protect me from whatever scary things life had store for me. I came to trust those beautiful green eyes, and every time I saw her, I knew I was safe. Now, to the more weird things that have been happening of late. The first incident that I can recall that could be defined as strange happened at 3 a.m. I woke up feeling extremely thirsty and being the fearful guy that I am, grabbed the flashlight to go get some water. Okay, come on, guys. What a loser. Man, using a flashlight to go get water in his own house. He doesn't want to wake up his sweet, wonderful, green-eyed, weird wife. (laughs) As soon as I turned on the flashlight, I noticed Natalie wasn't in bed. I looked over to the bathroom and the light was on and I could hear the water running, so I assumed she was there. Half asleep, I walked downstairs to the kitchen and almost had a heart attack when I saw Natalie standing in a corner drinking water. As soon as I saw her, though, I felt safe. She smiled at me as she sipped the water from the glass. I was too tired and I mumbled something about how hot it was as I got some water. She continued to smile at me as I finished my water and headed upstairs. As I walked back upstairs, I called out that she should come back to bed seeing as it's so late. When I get back to my room, there she was, sound asleep. (laughs) This was the moment I became wide awake. I could have sworn she was downstairs having water. Afraid to go back downstairs, I woke her up and told her what happened. Half asleep, half upset, she comforted me and told me to go back to bed. The next morning, she joked about how I'm so afraid of the dark that I see her everywhere as my protector. 
Besides, I was using the bathroom when you thought I was out of bed, she claimed. Oh my god. With that warm smile. How could I think otherwise? Oh my god. <laughs> Remember, I haven't read all this, so I'm getting freaked out. I'm not scared. <laughs> A week later, another strange incident. Oh. This was in broad daylight, well, on a Saturday morning. Natalie mm-hmm. woke me up at 11 and told me she was going to get groceries. At around 11.30 a.m., I finally got out of bed and dressed up for a late brunch with my beautiful wife. I went to the kitchen and found her drinking a glass of water. I smiled and said, back so soon, honey? She didn't reply. She just smiled as she sipped on her water. Before... <laughs> Before I could approach her, the doorbell doorbell rang, and I immediately went to go see who it was. I opened the door. Mm -mm. Yes. It was Natalie. No. Back with all the groceries. Oh, help me with all of this, will you? She jokingly snapped as she put down the paper bags by the door. Mm -hmm. As soon as she saw my color-drained face, she knew something was wrong. She sat me down, got me some water, and I told her what happened. This time it was in broad daylight, and I knew what I saw. As much as I had come to adore her beautiful green eyes, for the first time I saw in them a strange fear. My wife was the strong one, never afraid. She told me there is something she should have told me a long time ago. She said this happened to her as a kid, a lot, where her parents and siblings could see her in places they knew she wasn't. They could never explain these occurrences, but seeing as it caused no harm, they came to live with it without really questioning these encounters. It took me a few months to process everything she had told me, but I started to live with it also. Like I said, my true perception of fear was monsters, not my beautiful wife. Several similar incidents happened. For instance, I would see her sitting in bed, only to find her cooking in the kitchen downstairs. That's fucking weird. Mm Mm-mm. And in all these instances, when I could interact with this entity that I still saw as Natalie, she would smile and not say anything. I actually came to find comfort in seeing my wife all the time, always smiling, always happy, and always perfect. No, you should not be comforted. <laughs> no. It is important to note, however, that in all of these incidents, there was never any overlap, meaning I never saw her in two places simultaneously. I guess any sane person would have called out to their wife when they thought they were seeing the entity. Oh, but like yeah. I said, I found comfort in her green eyes and her smiling face. Dear so God. honestly, I didn't really care. Then today, everything changed. <laughs> Natalie told me she was going to visit her grandparents who live an hour away from where we do. She invited me to go, but seeing as it was Sunday and I just wanted to be lazy, I told her to go ahead without me. This is when it finally happened. The I was in my living room watching TV when I got up to get myself a Coke. There she was, my wife again, oh sipping God. water from a glass and just smiling. Beautiful oh. I was eyes I had grown so now, knowing this was the entity. That's I smiled when the phone and rang, rang, and I turned and away from nice the entity, you entity to pick it up. Hey, sweetie, I'm going to run a little late since Granny insists on me staying for lunch. It was Natalie. And as soon as I heard her voice, I heard a glass shatter, which she had heard as well on the other end of the line. I turned around and saw that the entity was now glaring at me, the smile no longer there, but rather a very disturbing grin. 
She was pointing at me with her head tilted at a perfect 90-degree angle. My heart's pounding so fast right now. I know. <laughs> but, that wasn't, but that wasn't what disturbed me. It was her eyes. They were no longer the green that I found so oh. much comfort in. They were pitch black like those demons in the movies. I stared at her as I was at a complete loss of words. Honey, is everything okay? Mm. Did you drop something? Natalie asked. I whispered back into the phone. I didn't. She did. At this point, Natalie screamed into the phone. Hang up and look away. I don't know how I found the strength to do so, but I did exactly what she said. When I opened my eyes a split second later, she was gone. Confused and scared, I called her back, and she told me she was already on the way. It shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have overlapped. They said it wouldn't. They said she was harmless. I am too scared to just sit around and wait. I still keep looking over my shoulder. Natalie should be home any time now. As soon as she gets back, I will ask her who she meant by they and what the hell is going on. She knows something, and I have to know what it is. Never did I think that the one I hold so near and dear to my heart, the one person who protects me, could become the monster that I fear the most. Oh, my. When Natalie finally got back, she came in crying and wouldn't stop. She kept saying, you, you don't deserve this. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve this. You weren't supposed to overlap. I love you. I care about you, your family. You shouldn't have overlapped. At this point, I was really confused. I comforted her. Held her until she stopped crying. Then, when she finally settled, I said, Love, you're not making any sense. Who is she? Are you referring to the entity? What? <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. She told me she doesn't have a name for it, and she has never actually seen her. Only others oh. around her can sometimes see her. But she has always been described as someone who looks just like her. The same radiant smile and the same lovely green eyes. She looked at me and started crying again. I only kept it from you because I didn't want to freak you out, she said. It's all right. Just tell me everything, I replied, pulling her close. Then she told me the story of the last person who overlapped, meaning saw her and the entity at the same time. When Natalie was in high school, her family, namely her parents and two brothers, were used to seeing it, as I call it, for the lack of a better word, around the house. She was always described as a smiling girl who would usually just be sipping on water. This occurrence only seemed to happen in her house, never at school or outside. Her parents, knowing the situation, would never allow her to bring any friends over for fear that they might freak out what they see. But one day, upon her insistence and in arguing that seeing it has never done anyone harm, her parents let her bring over a friend. Natalie and her friend Chris were working on some homework when Natalie decided to go down to the kitchen and grab some snacks. While she was coming back up, she heard Chris saying, Very funny! But you're weirding me out with that smile. Natalie stopped dead in her tracks, but it was too late. The door to her room was open, and she was in direct line of sight of Chris in the hallway. He turned to look at her, his face completely pale, as Natalie heard glass shattering. She was completely in shock. Chris was looking at them simultaneously. Staring wide-eyed in the corner of the room, she heard him say, What in the... Natalie ran towards her room, but the door suddenly slammed shut. She started banging on the door. Chris, don't look at her. Just don't. She screamed across the door, but silence. The door opened five minutes later, and she found him unconscious. After taking him to the hospital, they found out that Chris went blind. 
Doctors could not explain it, and when they asked Chris to describe the last thing he saw, he struggled for words. That, that grin, those, those eyes, black, black eyes, and her oh head, God. oh God, her head was tilted 90 degrees. <sighs> I never thought such a beautiful face could be so twisted. She thinks the only reason I can still see is because the overlap happened over the phone, so I wasn't able to see the full effect, whatever that means. I was surprised that another overlap like this hadn't occurred throughout her life. That's when Natalie told me that they said she was harmless and will not actively try to overlap. So then I inquired about the they that she just mentioned. Well, when I was a kid, my great-grandparents knew something about this. They were very hush-hush about it, but apparently it had happened in the family once before. So it was clear then we need to go see her great-great-grandmother, who was the only one who left that could provide us with any answers. Natalie called her mom and was told that they hadn't been in contact with their great-grandmother for the past two years. Ever since her husband died, she became depressed and asked not to be contacted and broke off all ties. She lived out in the country by herself, secluded from the rest of the world. It was going to be a three-hour drive, so we decided to attempt to get some rest before our drive the next day. I would not be sleeping next to this bitch. No. Hell no. Hell nah. We barely got a few hours of sleep in. My wife woke me up this morning telling me, breakfast is ready, as she walked downstairs. I would go with her. I noticed both of us must have missed our alarm since it was 11 a.m. already. The first, th- the first thing I checked when I woke up was that the bed... The first thing I checked when I woke up was the bed to make sure I wasn't seeing it. When I finally went downstairs, I nearly fell backwards when I saw my wife sipping from a glass of orange juice facing the kitchen entrance. Jeez, don't do that, I snapped. She came rushing towards me. Mm-mm. Sorry, she mumbled. I'd be like, no, bitch, get the fuck away from me. The fuck? <laughs> Sleep in the garage. <laughs> I walked over and gave her a hug. It's all right. We were both on edge. We'll work through this. After a breakfast that neither of us had the appetite for, we hit the road to find some answers. As we were driving, my wife held my hand, and I felt safe once again. It was a strange sense of security, because even after the crazy events, it was bright and sunny outside, and I was peacefully driving away with my wife. She smiled at me. I smiled back, looking at her beautiful green eyes while fighting internally to take the image of the twisted entity off of my mind. We remained quiet for most of our journey until we finally reached the house. The house was located deep off of a small highway on a narrow dirt road. There was an old van parked, but it didn't look like it had been driven for weeks. The house also looked like it had been abandoned for a while. My wife reached out and I held her hand. Let's hope for the best and see what we find, I said. But before I could open the door, my cell phone rang. Uh, nope. 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 No, absolutely not. I'm smashing that phone with a hammer. I'm calling it TNT anymore. I don't want to read anymore. <laughs> Katie, you did this. Katie, you've done this. You keep reading. I'm going to come to your house and breathe on you. Oh, God. <laughs> the moment the first ringing sound broke the quiet air, my wife clutched my hand just a bit tighter. She was on edge. I could tell. I looked over at her and she was smiling ever so slightly. I pulled out my phone and looked at the caller ID. It read, Natalie. Uh, absolutely. 
The grip of the hand that I was holding started getting tighter and tighter. I suddenly got the feeling I was not with my wife at all. Call it a gut feeling, I picked up the phone as I realized the person in my peripheral vision was changing their expression. Mm-mm. The breathing also got heavier as I heard the neck starting to turn. No. <laughs> with what little bravery, bravery I had left, I turned away, not daring to see the twisted face. It's not me, Natalie yelled from the phone. <laughs> okay. Why would she call? She knows bad things happen when they overlap. My eyes, they weren't. No, he thought he was with her. She mm-hmm. didn't call. Like, he thought he woke up with her and left with her, remember? Oh, yes, my but God. Why would Natalie call? Yeah, she's because she's calling him. Oh, but she knows that they can't overlap. Yeah. It's like a butterfly effect. You're fucking this up, Natalie. Also, why is he being dumb? He knows what's happening. Get out of the fucking car, idiot. I don't know. Let's see what's going to happen. I'm so scared. All (laughs) of I I'm literally so scared. I can't wait to see how this turns out. (laughs) The instant her voice reached my ear, I felt the glass shattering sound and a burning pain on my hand that lasted for a split second. I recoiled in pain, responding, I know, I think it's gone now. I looked over to see, and sure enough, she wasn't there anymore. I breathed. Don't hang up. Drive over here. We need to see this thing through. On her drive over, she explained how when she woke up, she was seemingly stuffed under the bed as if someone knocked her out and slid her under the bed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, she's trying to single white female, you bitch. Jesus Christ. (laughs) When she woke up and realized that I wasn't there, she knew something was up and called immediately. At this point, I was freaking out a lot. So many questions rushed to mind. It talked? It acted just like my wife? How was it holding my hand? How in the world did it get out of the house? Most importantly, how do I tell it apart from my wife? I mean, he's got two wives. He's living the Mm -hmm. dream. Uh, switch your religion to Mormonism and live your best life, honey. Um, I don't know. It's like you have missionary sex with one and like scary demon dungeon sex with the other. That's when I remembered the stinging pain and looked at my hand. There was a very clear lucky burned into my hand. While I waited for my wife to drive over, I started thinking the entity said breakfast ready and sorry. Fuck no. Why in the world was it sipping orange juice? Is it evolving? Is it learning how to fool me? Ooh. I wondered for a long time what all this meant until my wife finally arrived at 5 p.m. It was getting dark and I wanted to go find a motel and come back tomorrow. But my wife insisted that we at least check to see if someone even lives in the abandoned house. Before she got out of the car, though, she took the cigarette lighter from a car and burned it on her hand. I got very upset when she did that, but she said it might help me tell them apart. At this point, any idea of rationalizing this fear sounded great. We went and knocked on the door as the doorbell seemed broken. Did you hear that? My wife looked at me terrified. Hear what? I wondered. The scream. It sounds like someone's in pain. My Mm -hmm. instinct was to back out. I really wished I had. 
But before I could do anything, my wife was opening the door, leading me in. I held her hand while keeping one foot in the door. I was all too familiar with the classic door slams behind you in a creepy house to walk in completely. Inside, everything was dusty and full of webs. It was also unnervingly dark. As my eyes adjusted to the dark, I noticed that the house was completely trashed, with strange symbols scratched into the walls and on the broken Mm -hmm. furniture in a shade of red. Just then, my wife started feeling lightheaded and began to fall. I feel so dizzy, she mumbled. I immediately caught her as she passed out. Then, to my horror, as I looked up, I saw her in the hallway. I could barely make out her figure, but her finger was pointed at me. With her head tilted at that unnatural angle, I did not need to stand there until I saw the rest of her creepy figure. Mm. I immediately turned around while dragging my wife with me. The door behind us slammed shut, but luckily my foot was in the door. I groaned in pain from the impact and lunged towards the barely open door and crashed outside with my wife. I looked back wishing she was gone, but she was still walking towards us very slowly and deliberately. Close your eyes, idiot. Close your eyes. You're going to go blind. He does not learn. He doesn't learn. Jesus Christ. It's like he does. He he's unable to recognize his own advice. He's like, "Oh, this person went blind, huh? Well, I guess I'll just keep staring at both of these ladies. See what happens." <laughs> I drove half an hour to a small motel to rent a room for the night. At this point, my wife is asleep, and I have not slept at all. I dare not look away from her. And what does the message on my hand mean? Is it toying with me, telling me I'm lucky? My wife called to save me. Should I go into the house again with someone else? I typed up this update for you guys, and in a little bit, she'll be up, and we'll decide what our next move is. Any suggestions are welcome. When my wife woke up, we had a long discussion on what our next step should be. While we were talking, I casually glanced at her wrist and noticed the burn mark was still there. She saw me looking, and her usual radiant green eyes became dull. It is me. I wish I could tell you not to be afraid of me, but I don't trust myself anymore. Tears started running down her face as I gave her a hug and comforted her without responding. She was right. I was starting to doubt the one person I trusted to protect me in any situation. Though I took some solace in the fact that she was still the one who saved me twice from the twisted entity, besides doubting ourselves, we did come up with a few theories that seemed to make sense in light of recent events. First, it seems that the entity is able is unable to appear in my wife's presence, proven by the fact that the moment she passed out, I was able to see it. Second, the entity is either evolving since it was able to speak and move out of the house, or there might be multiple entities, as some of you suggested. Third, technology could potentially be a weakness for this thing, as the phone call has saved me twice now. Finally, there is something very wrong with the house that the entity definitely doesn't want us there. The house is something that has to be explored, but it's too dangerous to just go back without any further knowledge. So we decided to talk to the only other person in Natalie's life who had experienced the overlap, her high school friend Chris, the blind guy. After making some phone calls, we found out that Chris lived in a nearby town and had become a support group speaker for the visually impaired. It turned out he was actually speaking at 11 a.m., and we still had enough time to be able to make it. We got to the small community hall just in time as they closed the door. Most of Chris's speech was very uplifting and full of emotion, talking about all that he had achieved in life. He ended his speech by saying, The day that I lost my vision was the day that I truly stopped living in fear. We stuck around after, and when the hall had emptied, approached Chris, who was standing next to his wife, 
whom he had introduced earlier during his speech. I didn't know how to even begin to ask him about his vision loss, but before I could say anything, he pointed to me. Ah, so the overlap happened. She said you would come. Mm-mm. He then went on to tell us that ever since the incident, Natalie's great-grandmother had been in close touch with Chris. She felt very guilty about what happened and was determined to find as much as she could. She also insisted that it was only a matter of time before the overlap happened again around Natalie and she wanted to find a way to stop it. When we told Chris about the condition of the house and about the symbols that I saw, he became very serious. Then she tried to do it. She tried to blind what holds the sisters together to her oh house. Oh my god. Oh my god. I'm afraid oh. I may not have survived that, he said quietly. I was really confused at this point. Did you just say sisters, I asked? Oh my god. <gasps> Wait. <laughs> Chris then told us to follow him home as there was a lot we needed to discuss. Ooh. Don't follow a blind man. He doesn't know where he's going. Yeah. How can he see to drive? <laughs> he has a wife. Okay. Oh, okay. I missed that part. Okay. Yeah, I was like, wait, what do you mean follow him home? He doesn't know where he's going. <laughs> Chris's wife cooked us lunch. He told us about the day he lost his vision. So I never told this to anyone except your great-grandmother. But that day that I lost my vision before I passed out, I'm pretty certain I saw a second entity behind the one that I was staring at in disbelief. No, 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 no. <laughs> and as I drifted into unconsciousness, I heard a whisper. Mm-mm. Did you hear me? Do it again. Peed. Did you just say peed? <laughs> Yes, they whispered, peed. I no. peed. <laughs> I was very confused. They whispered, feed. I oh. heard feed. Nope. He went on to explain that Natalie's great-grandmother called the entity sisters since she was certain there was more than one of them. <laughs> Additionally, oh, no. I believe that they feed off of our fears, and not just fear, but the greater the fear, the more attracted the entity becomes. This made sense seeing as I've been afraid most of my life and now I am at a peak of my fear since the one that I saw as my protector has become the subject of my fear. That's some fuckery right there. Yeah, that's a deep sentence. After years of research into ancient love, demonology, mythology, and family history, Natalie's great-grandmother found a way to pin the sisters. That has to be why there were strange symbols in the house and why the sisters didn't want us going near the house. She must have found a way to bind them there. However, seeing as the entity still appeared and drove with me in the car, that means they are still able to move freely, but they might have a vulnerability in that house. All of this was progress, yet the thought of not knowing how to deal with these sisters was quite troubling. Lunch is ready, called out Chris's wife as we made our way to the kitchen to enjoy a much-needed meal. Chris wanted to end this as much as we did, so he insisted that we spend the night with him for our safety. What? Um, that seems unsafe. Categorically unsafe. Yeah, d- please, please don't spend the night with the guy who you blind blinded. I feel like there's a revenge plot here. Okay, you ready, y'all? I'm scared. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Considering I had not gotten any sleep lately, I welcomed the idea. We all stayed in the living room, and Chris's wife and I took shifts staying up to make sure nothing happened. I woke up at 3 a.m. feeling thirsty yet again. I laughed at myself as I thought maybe I have a medical condition of waking up thirsty in the middle of the night. I looked over at Chris's wife since it was ne- since it was her shift to be on watch. Sure enough, she was awake and looking over at me with a gentle smile. 
No. No. I was <laughs> I whispered water as she pointed to the kitchen. I walked over, half in fear of seeing the entity again. The kitchen was thankfully empty. As I went to look for water in the fridge, darn, no cold water in the fridge. I figured they might have some bottled water in the pantry. When I opened the pantry, Mm-mm. I saw that it was very spacious and dark. <laughs> I went to turn on the light and saw something very unexpected um, and horrific. No. In the corner lay Chris's wife, <gasps> tied up, <gasps> seemingly unconscious. No. Then it all hit me. Lunch is ready. Those were the only words spoken by Chris's wife that day. I was so caught up in figuring out what was chasing us that I missed that fact completely. I rushed back to the living room to find my wife missing and Chris Mm -mm. sound asleep. What ensued after is beyond bizarre. (laughs) I woke up Chris and called the cops immediately. I knew they must have taken her to the house. I didn't have to tell them my wife was missing, so I rushed out the door and headed for the house. Yes, I know this was very stupid, but we do stupid things when our loved ones are in danger. That's just human nature. During the drive, I kept asking myself, how did I miss that? Why is the entity evolving so fast? It took another form? Is it because I was not supposed to survive an overlap, much less twice? Is it hunting me down? But why take my wife? He's asking a lot of questions. Yeah, what? Get the fuck out. He's driving. How did I miss that? Why my wife? What's happening? Why my wife? Is that what you said? No. Oh. <laughs> what what the fuck is happening right now? I finally reached the house. It was now six AM in the morning. Before I could step outside my car, my phone rang. It was Natalie. Mm mm. Hello, honey, are you okay? Where are you? I yelled as I picked up. I'm I'm so confused. I thought we slept at Chris's house. I'm home. I'm Mm-mm. home. Please just come back. Now I was really confused. Is that still my wife on the phone? Honey, you're wrist. Before I could finish, she replied, Yes, there is a burn mark on my wrist. So I decided to drive back. No. As I started conversing, I saw it. Standing in the window of that decrepit house, sipping water from a glass. Smiling at me with eyes shining greener than usual. No. I left for home. Frustrated and not understanding any of what was going on. On my drive back, I wondered, I knew I was going to go back to the house to look for my wife. It wanted me to see, but why? When I got home, Natalie came running and gave me a hug. I felt cold-hearted for doing this, but I immediately pulled out her wrist to find the burn mark on it. She looked up at me in disappointment. It is me. As I finally looked into her eyes, my heart stopped. (gasps) Her eyes, they were dark black. The iris of her eye was no longer the beautiful green that I had come to find comfort in. They were a deep black. No. Natalie has been crying a lot ever since she looked in the mirror, and I am still processing all of what just happened. It's been a complete day since her eyes changed color, and there have been no more sightings of the entity. Life is seemingly normal. Not perfect anymore, but normal. Natalie is still herself, but seems to be a lot more of a serious person now. 
I spoke with Chris on the phone, and he told me that him and his wife are doing okay and have not seen the entity since. At this point, I'm writing this update, and I'm not sure if I should go back into the house and investigate. I can't help but think it wanted me to see its eyes that day in the house. It wanted me to know what it took from me. I don't even know if destroying the sisters will bring Natalie's beautiful big green eyes back. With that said, I'm keeping a close eye on her. Just when I thought maybe I had found peace, just maybe I could move on with everything, things got weirder. So Natalie's eyes remained black. After a couple of weeks of pretending that things were okay, I tried talking to her about the whole situation, but she would always find a way to skirt around the conversation. Things have never really been the same. We eat dinner in silence. I wake up at night and find her staring at the ceiling. I couldn't continue to live on like this. I needed to find a way to fix things, and the only way I know how was to go back to that disturbing house. I mean, there's other ways. You could find a new wife. You could just love your wife the way she is, even more. Like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't have green eyes anymore, so. Oh, fuck her, that's right. Uh, find me another green-eyed broad. There you go. I sat down with Natalie, and we had a long conversation about everything that had happened, and she reluctantly agreed that we needed to go back to the house. Whatever these sisters were, we needed to confront them. So before we headed to the house, we came up with a plan. A lot of you guys suggested that mirrors might help, so I made sure to bring a mirror with me. I mean, at that point, why not? Additionally, knowing how dark it was inside the house last time, I brought some night vision goggles. Now the question about whether Natalie would accompany accompany me on the trip or not, considering that she has been my savior every time we decided it was best that she went with me. However, I was not going to let her enter the house under any circumstances. I have also taken your suggestion on making sure that it is her. Even though Natalie has been significantly quieter than before, I make it a point to ask her numerous questions and expect answers to make sure it's her. I can see the sadness in her eyes, how she knows that I have lost the complete trust I used to have in her, but she complies and responds to my questions, knowing it's the only way I can keep a straight head in this entire situation. We arrived at the house at 11 a.m. in broad daylight. Not that it made a difference, since the house was dark as ever inside. Since it was a pretty remote area, I didn't feel bad hooking up a chain to the front door and pulling it off with my truck. I wasn't letting any door close on me this time. I had Natalie stand about 10 feet away from the door frame so that she could still see me as I walked in. My theory was that these sisters seemed unable to face her, so as long as I maintained a good line of sight with Natalie, I half-heartedly hoped they wouldn't appear. With my night vision goggles activated, I stepped into the house with Natalie nervously calling out from behind. Be careful, honey. Even though so much had happened, I still found a sense of comfort in her voice. It will be all right, I promise. We will fix this. I called back. The air was heavy inside the house, and I found it slightly hard to breathe, but nevertheless, I planned for this trip for quite a few days, and I wasn't about to back out. I saw the symbols again on the walls, and I pulled out my phone and took some pictures. Everything in the house was trash and a dust. Everything in the house was trash and dusty, except a small cupboard on the wall across the living room. So far, I had been walking in a straight line, maintaining vision with Natalie, but this cupboard seemed odd. It had too many symbols around it. And it was the only object in the house that seemed to be untouched. There had been no sign of the sisters. I'm going to check something out really quick. I'll be right back, okay? I called out to Natalie, who shook her head. Oh, okay, please just hurry. I want to leave already. I sprinted across the room and looking through and looked through the drawers. All were empty except the last one, which had a small pocket-sized leather-bound diary. I immediately put it in my pocket and started to head back. Oh, no. 
Just then, I turned around to find the smiling face of my wife with a glass of water in her hand and eyes that looked greener than ever. Absolutely. I admired her beautiful green eyes only to immediately snap out of it and realize this was the entity I was facing. I slowly began to walk past it in, in an arc. Just as I had passed her, is everything okay in there? Natalie yelled from outside. The moment the sound of her voice reached me, I heard a glass shatter behind me. I knew what was going on, and in that adrenaline-filled moment, I said, screw it. I'm going to give this a shot. I pulled out the mirror, turned around, and held it in front of its face. Now I can see her through my night vision goggles, head tilted, grinning. It let out a scream and shattered the mirror in my hand. Ah! I slowly began to back up towards Natalie's line of sight, eyes closed shut. Just when I thought I was almost there, I bumped into someone. Then I felt a hand on my shoulder and a face right next to mine. Absolutely not. No, no, no. You came back to us, it whispered in my ear. The most disturbing part wasn't that my eyes were closed. It was the fact that it sounded like five people saying it at exactly the same time with some deep and some higher-pitched voices. Then I felt another hand as I was swung around to the ground with a force I could not comprehend. As I fell, I crawled towards that little light was coming through the door. I barely got far enough to see Natalie screaming outside and running towards the house. Stop, Natalie, stop, don't come in, I yelled as she halted a couple of feet from the door. No, 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 not you two. They can't have you two. They said they wouldn't. At the time, I didn't really pay attention to what she said. I felt a hand holding my foot, knowing that they were trying to drag me out of her vision. I noticed my phone had fallen out. At this point, I became very dizzy, and I reached to unlock my phone. Even though it was dark, Natalie's face lit up on my phone screen background. Her beautiful green eyes were as radiant as ever. I gave her one last look as I began to pass out. But right before I passed out, I felt the hand on my foot release. Mm. I woke up at the hospital. As my blurry vision became clear, Natalie jumped at me and gave me a hug. Oh, thank God you're okay. Can you see? Look at me. Can you see? As she moved back, the first thing I noticed were her green eyes. They were just as radiant as they used to be. Your eyes, I mumbled. Natalie let out a scream of joy when she realized I could see. Yes! Yes, honey, my eyes are okay. I feel like myself now. Everything's okay. I had so many questions in that instance, but the doctor insisted that I rest. The next morning, while the doctors were completing all the paperwork for my discharge, I spoke to Natalie about what happened at the house. She explained that as I was falling unconscious, she ran into the house only to see that the sisters were staring at my phone screen. The instant Natalie saw them, they looked up at her. After a brief scale, they disappeared. She also told me that she was pulling me out of the house. It started crumbling and collapsed to the ground as we barely made it out. Really? I thought to myself. Was it that simple? Then I remembered the pictures I had taken in the house and I reached for my phone to look at them. What are you looking for, love? Natalie asked as she saw me desperately going through my photos. I took some pictures in the house, but I can't find them. I replied as I wondered what happened to them. Hmm. I don't remember you taking any pictures. She grabbed my phone and slid it in her purse. But we will worry about that later. I'm just glad you are okay. She gave me a hug. She was acting a little strange. Did she just did she delete the pictures from my phone? Mm. I noticed my jacket hanging on the door, the same one I had worn when I went inside the house. I walked over to put it on. It's chilly in here. I smiled at Natalie. Just then the doctor called for her to sign some papers, and as she turned away, I immediately felt my inside pocket. 
I can feel the small leather diary. Ever since we've been home, Natalie has constantly been by my side, quite literally. The only time I was not with her was when I went to use the bathroom. I pulled out the diary and looked at the first page. Herein lies what little knowledge we have gained over generations since the birth of the sisters. I was about to flip the page when Natalie started banging on the door. Are you okay in there? Yes, I'm fine, honey. Be out in a bit, I yelled back. Something's not right. She won't leave me alone for one bit. Not to mention what she said before I passed out. She knows something and won't tell me. But I don't want to confront her just yet. I went to work today and tried to read the diary whenever I got the chance, but I had a busy day. The story is quite long, but I am getting close to finishing it. Earlier today, I left work a couple of hours early and drove over to the supposedly demolished house. What I saw disturbed me. The house was burnt to the ground as if someone had deliberately set fire to it. Why would Natalie lie to me? Did she set this house on fire? I am also starting to doubt a lot of what she said recently. Natalie keeps calling for me to come to bed, and I am in my study writing this update. I keep lying, saying I'm writing something for work. I also told her I have to go into work tomorrow morning for a few hours to make up for the time I was in the hospital. She bought it, and I'll be going over to a coffee shop instead to finish reading the contents of the diary. I will update you guys real soon on the contents of the diary. So I'll pick up where I left off. When I finished my previous post, I went to bed, ready to go to the local Starbucks in the next morning to finish reading the diary. Surprisingly, I actually fell asleep, all the while Natalie holding my hand and telling me everything was all right. I woke up at 3 a.m. again, feeling thirsty. By now, I've realized that this is not really normal, but then again, nothing has really been normal. I decided to go down to the kitchen and get a drink of water anyway. As I tried to slip out my hand from Natalie's, she instantly woke up. What's wrong, honey? She inquired. Mm. Her eyes were not sleepy. It was as if she wasn't really sleeping at all. Mm-mm. Oh, nothing, love. I just need to get a drink of water, I replied. Before I even got out of bed, she was out of bed and ready to go down with me. She held my hand and walked me down to the kitchen as I got a glass of water. She was being overprotective, too protective. Mind you, there wasn't anything really wrong with her. She was herself, but I couldn't help but feel she was just making sure I never see the entity again, which is why every chance she got, she tried to be around me. We went back to bed and I fell asleep knowing that Natalie was probably not going to sleep at all. In the morning, she asked me several questions about why I was going to work. I made up some decent excuses. Sweetheart, I will be fine. I thought you said it was over. They're gone, I told her. Yes, of course. I just wanted to make sure. I just want to spend as much time with you as I can. After all, that's happened. She said with almost a sad look on her face. I arrived at the Starbucks, ordered some coffee, and without any further delay, pulled out the diary and began reading. Before I tell you about the contents of the diary, I want to make some observations regarding the diary itself. It was very old and leather-bound and nearly falling apart. It had several different types of handwriting throughout, suggesting that it had been passed down by multiple people and had taken notes in it. The notes within the diary were scattered, and I have tried my best to piece everything together. The diary began, began by telling the story of two sisters who were both born a year apart. The first was Madeline, born on March 11, 1800. A beautiful girl with bright green eyes, she was the first child to her parents. The second daughter was born on March 11, 1801. This seemed a little odd to the parents, but they didn't give it too much thought, since their second daughter also had big green eyes, like her older sister Madeline. They named her Carolyn. As they grew older, the parents realized that both Madeline and Carolyn were identical, and not just identical twins, they looked exactly the same. 
It was only later that the parents realized not only were the daughters born on the same day, they were both born at exactly 3 a.m. Initially, they went and saw several different doctors, but none of them could explain the strange phenomenon. Hmm. All they could conclude was that this was a strange anomaly. Eventually, the entire family just accepted the strange phenomenon and continued on with their lives. Of the two sisters, Carolyn, the younger one, was very lively and energetic. She had a way with words, and all the townspeople were very fond of her. Madeline, the older sister, was quiet-natured. She didn't speak too much, and over the years, she had come to envy her sister Carolyn. I'm going to call her Caroline. Caroline would sometimes pretend to be Madeline or Madeline. God damn it, these names to confuse people. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they're both dead now, hopefully, so I think either or is fine. All right. For the most part, the sisters were like any other siblings with usual conflicts every now and then. Now, this next part of their story takes a dark turn. It turns out that both Madeline and Caroline fell in love with the same man. Thomas was a very wealthy businessman and businessman. God damn it, I can't talk. Okay. Thomas was a very wealthy businessman and they both got to know him because he worked closely with their father. Seemingly, Caroline admired Thomas's wealth more than anything, whereas Madeline was in love with Thomas. Thomas chose to marry Caroline, not knowing that her affection wasn't real. Being the quiet one, Madeline didn't say anything. On their wedding day, however, when Madeline saw Caroline getting ready to put on her wedding dress, she couldn't contain her anger and frustration and confronted her little sister. In a heated argument, she accidentally pushed Caroline down the stairs, causing her to die. What happened next was even more bizarre. In a state of shock and emotional distress, Madeline hid her younger sister in the closet, put on Caroline's wedding dress, and proceeded with the ceremony. Oh, no. Madeline got married to the love of her life and proceeded to move forward with her life as if nothing had happened. A few days later, Caroline's body was discovered. The reason they knew it was Caroline is that the person, the parents had secretly marked both sisters with two distinct burn marks on their backs. Once word got out, Thomas left Madeline in utter disgust. Madeline realized that her life was now ruined and realized what she had done and hung herself. Now, I realized that Caroline was always the one who smiled, the one who talks, and the one who can imitate people. Madeline, on the other hand, is the twisted form of the entity. So at this point, I asked myself, so that's it. There are ghosts haunting the family. Well, not quite. The diary continued to explain what happened next. A generation later, the family was blessed with another beautiful baby girl named Laura. As Laura grew up, the rest of the family couldn't help but notice that she looked exactly like Madeline and Caroline. Slowly, the family started seeing the entity, and strange things began to happen. Now, the writer in the diary claims that they do not completely understand the origin of the overlap. However, they do know that it happens when the child experienced immense emotion. Now, I won't give you each and every detail from the diary, as the notes were quite extensive. The diary gave several accounts of different daughters daughters being born in the family every once in a while that follow the same pattern. They look like Madeline and Caroline, and things around them become strange. Over the course of the notes, the diary writes, understanding of the entity increased. All cases ended with the sisters taking complete procession of the daughter or anomaly, child, and disappearing. Over the years, the family figured out that the original burn marks used by the parents to mark the two sisters could shield items from the sisters. However, this did not work when the marks were applied to people. The notes went back and forth on what exactly the sisters were until I arrived at the last few pages of the diary, which was ri- which were written by Natalie's great-grandmother. At least, that was my guess. Turns out, she was a neurologist. She theorized that the sisters were a part of the anomaly child. 
This is why no one ever found a way to end the sisters. They reside within the mind of the anomaly child. This meant that part of Natalie was the two sisters. Natalie's great-grandmother continued by saying Natalie is not to blame. The sisters are able to communicate with her subconsciously. Therefore, she knows that they exist, but is not completely aware of what happened around her. To my horror, I turn to the next page, hoping for a solution. The final words in the diary read, It's her. They are a part of her. In every part, in every past case, the final stage was complete control of the anomaly child's body by the entity. After which, the immediate people around the anomaly child would die, and the anomaly child would disappear. The sisters are entities that feed off of immense emotion. Unfortunately, we have tried, but killing the anomaly child does not end the cycle. They will be coming for me next, as they have seen the diary in my possession. I am hiding this diary under with the prescribed markings. To whoever finds this next, I am sorry. Now, I wrote that last paragraph without telling you how shocked I was. Was this it? There was no solution? Is that why Natalie has been staying so close to me? Does she realize that she will eventually be lost to the sisters? How did she save me that day at the house? Did she actually interact with the entity? I closed the diary, my heart racing. I cannot lose Natalie. She is my world. She is everything to me. As I looked up, I realized it was almost dark. I had spent nearly the whole day reading this diary. As I drove back home, I didn't know what to do. I did decide that I needed to confront Natalie and tell her about the diary even though that probably didn't sound like the best idea. But what other choice did I have? When I got back home, Natalie rushed into my arms, and I apologized for being so late. We had a nice dinner together, and afterwards she asked me if we could go look at the stars for a little while. Considering all the weird things that had happened lately, I gladly agreed to finally do something normal with Natalie. Remember how we used to climb out of the roof of the engineering building on campus and stare at the stars, she asked, turning towards me. Yeah, and I still stand by what I said then. I don't really need to look at the stars when I can look into your beautiful love, I responded. What? What? <clears throat> All of us. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I, if, I ever, if I ever said that to Kat, she would divorce me on the fucking spot. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> She'd be like, gay? And then, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Alright. Anyways, back where the schmuck. I love you so much. Always know that, she said and started crying. I held her as I couldn't help but think she knew what was going on. That night I went to bed, fully intending to confront her the next morning. I woke up at two forty five AM to Natalie quietly kissing my forehead. I pretended to stay asleep as I heard her walk downstairs. I quietly got up and followed her down. Then I saw her holding a suitcase and walking towards the front door. Natalie, honey, what's going on? I called out. She turned, eyes full of tears. I have to go. I'm so sorry. I have to go, please. I wasn't letting her go. I had gone through too much for her sake. Natalie, I know everything. I started, but she kept glancing at the watch. No, you don't. I asked them to. I told them to take me, but leave you alone, she screamed. Now I was really worried. Natalie, what did you do? How did you get me out of that house? Natalie, I need you to be honest with me. For once, honey, trust me. She collapsed to the floor. I begged them. I begged them to leave you alone and take me. I've been fighting them for so long. I've been fighting to keep them away for so long. Half the time, I don't even know who's in control. They agreed they will leave you alone only if I stop fighting them. But it's too late now. I am no longer fighting them in my mind. I had given them control of my body. Run, run, run. 
As she said her last words, I began to notice the strange inflictions in her voice. Run, she screamed as she looked up, her eyes pitch black, her head starting to tilt, a grin slowly forming on her face, and the clock behind her read 3 a.m. What ensued was probably the craziest thing I've ever done. I beat that bitch's ass. Ooh. <laughs> I was not expecting that at, not at all. <laughs> I know, because I made that shit up. Oh, I was like, damn. I thought his eye or her eyes were the only thing he needed. Now he's like, fuck you, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Kills her and carves her eyes out and puts them on his mantle. The end. <laughs> Happy endings for everyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what ensued was probably the craziest thing I have ever done. But in hindsight, these last couple of months have made me a lot braver than I ever was. As she stood up, I rushed towards her and gave her a hug. I know you're in there, love. I know you've been protecting me all this time. You've always been my savior. Now it's time for me to save you. Now it's time I protect you. Come back to me, Natalie. Come back to me. You are stronger than they are. Fight back. Fight back for me. Fight back for us. I love you. I cannot live without you. I held her. Eyes shut closed. Remember the stars? Remember how we stared at them last night? Remember how we stared at them all those years ago? I still think your eyes shine brighter than any of the stars in the sky. Oh, shut up. In that adrenaline-filled moment, I kept talking on about our most cherished memories until I felt tears falling down my shoulder. I finally had the guts to pull away from her to see that she had returned to being my Natalie. Eyes shining bright green, full of tears. I'm so sorry, she said as I held her for a long time. After everything that had happened, I realized that I was so afraid of the world. I've always feared monsters that exist in my imagination. And the only person I saw that could shelter me was Natalie. Little did I know that all along she was fighting against something much scarier. She needs me more than ever, and I have finally come to see that. She needs me more than ever, and I have finally come to see that. I have realized that I have to fight for the one I care for so deeply. I believe that in the moment when Natalie gave the sisters control over her body, they became vulnerable. Somehow, they seemed to be trapped inside of Natalie. Life is not going to be normal anymore, but I don't care. As long as I have Natalie, everything will be all right. It has been a week since, and things are starting to normalize. Still, sometimes at night, I wake up, and when I turn to look at Natalie, I see those pitch black eyes. But I hold Natalie's hand, and in the blink of an eye, her green eyes return, brighter than ever. Yeah, um, she would be gone. Yeah, bye. Goodbye. Anyways, who's next, Liz? It is I. Yes, Liz, give give us a palate cleanser. Okay, well, this one is called Distorted Warning Signals. It's one of my faves. It's a quick one, but it's a doozy. What is it called? It's called Distorted Warning Signals. Stop it. (laughs) When I got the first one, I was literally seconds away from stepping onto the plane when a call from an unknown blared from my cell phone. It was a ringtone I had never heard before, one that I was pretty sure hadn't come with my phone. Normally, I would have stopped to answer it, but I was expecting a call about a job that I had interviewed for the previous week. I took a deep breath and accepted the call. Hello? Do not get on the plane. 
a woman's voice, garbled and strange, as if her vocal cords had been shredded, and she was trying desperately to choke out speech. Despite the unnerving, fractured quality of her voice, her tone was insistent yet eerily calm. Then the call ended. I froze. I had always had a slight phobia of air travel, and something about the call just... There's no way that I was about to get on a seven-hour flight now. I turned around and headed towards the food court. I'd just get on another flight later in the afternoon. I watched from the airport Starbucks three hours later as every TV in the terminal lit up with the crash footage of the plane that I should have been on. <gasps> no survivors. Not a single one. I tried to trace the call. So did the police. But there was nothing to trace. There's no evidence my phone had ever received a call around that time. They analyzed phone records, incoming and outgoing communication to my phone. Nothing. I wasn't making it up. I could not have been. That was only the first call. In all the years, they were few and far between, but always right and always on time. Do not go on that blind date tonight. Five months later, my would-be date was convicted of killing four women, all with my hair color and body type. Found them in a shallow grave about 250 feet from the diner he offered to take me to. Do not drive to the concert tonight. An 18-wheeler lost control and plowed into a line of cars. Every driver crushed, every driver killed. In the stretch of freeway that I would have been driving down. No matter if I got a new phone, if I moved, the calls would still come. I could almost feel the presence of whoever it was or whatever it was watching over me. I imagined being at the bottom of the freezing ocean, still strapped into my coach section plane seat, or being in that mass grave across from the diner, or watching an 18-wheeler skid towards my car, knowing that death was imminent, and I'd get this tightness in my chest. I'd think about how thin that line was, how close I'd gotten, how close I always was. If I hadn't had a job interview I was waiting to hear back from, I would have never listened to that first call, and that would have been it for me. It always felt like something was coming for me, but there was always this, this fractured, warped voice with these calls that never seemed to exist after I heard them. Self-destructing warning signals rotting away before my eyes, and I was alive. I had a bad feeling about the cruise I was supposed to go on. I had planned it as a girl's week with some of my old friends from college and was looking forward to a week in the tropics in the dead of winter. But part of me could almost sense that the call was coming. Maybe I'd watched Titanic one too many times, but there was a little nagging fear from the start. I hoped it would be fine, but I knew something was going to happen. I'd get the call. I just knew it. Now, a week before, I'm set to go on the cruise after stepping into my apartment after returning from dinner with a friend. I noticed my cell has a message from unknown. They never had to leave a message before. Oh, creepy. Damn it, and I had really wanted to go on that cruise, too. I bought swimsuits. I bought sunblock. <laughs> I was ready. Oh, well. Liz, is that you or the is that you were in the story? It's in the story. Okay. It's not worth whatever horrific fate awaited me in that cold, dark ocean. I clicked play message as I put my keys down the counter, and I felt my stomach drop 
as I listened to the voice, sounding horrifically distorted as if it emanated from a throat slashed to ribbons, crackling with more urgency than I'd ever heard before. I look around my apartment, turning on lights as the voice on the phone repeats. Sorry, I can't breathe. (sighs) Okay. As the voice on the phone repeats the same phrase over and over again. Do not come home after dinner tonight. Do not come home after dinner tonight. No. Do not after dinner tonight. Do not click. The end. Oh, I cried. I made myself cry. <laughs> My eyes are watering. Oh, <laughs> no. He should have listened to the voicemail. Did I get you? That's. Yes. Yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> I know, I scared myself. I've read that one like four times, but reading it out loud, there's just something about it. It's fu- That's fucking wild. But I mean, there's yeah. only so many times you can escape death, you know? It's like Final Destination. If it's your time, it's your mm-hmm. fucking time, okay? And that tanning bed's gonna get you. <laughs> <laughs> or the weightlifting thing, or God, Lord, Lord knows what else. Or the Talladega car. I mean, something. Oh, yeah. Oh my god. That's, I love those I movies, love just to be honest. Maybe they're good. Oh yeah, no, they're incredibly fucking good. I'll never get over the tanning bed. I literally saw that movie in middle school and I forgot about it. And then when I was in high school, my first job was at a tanning salon. And then some random girl like came in and she was like, Do you guys ever think about like Final Destination? And I was like, Oh my fucking god. <laughs> and then after that I never tanned by myself. Like, cause I used to just tan like after we closed. So it'd be like 9 30 at night and I would be tanning literally by myself, like 17 in this like tanning salon just alone. And then I freaked the fuck out. I never did that again. I mean that's that's fair. Cause that would be my luck, you know? Or I'm, like, tanning and someone comes into the tanning salon and I can't hear because the fan in the tanning bed is so loud. Nope. 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 Long story Uh, short, don't get skin cancer, kids. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, long story short, don't do anything ever. Yeah, long story short, live in fear. Agoraphobia is on trend. Okay? Mm -hmm. Alright, are y'all ready? God damn it. I have a kitten in my lap, so I'm as prepared as I'll ever be. <laughs> the following story has... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so this is um, this is called The Exorcisms of Emma. Oh, God. And it, it's by... It's written by a guy named Matthew Pearl. So, the following story has been reported based on the first-hand ac- uh, accounts of those involved. Highly detailed notes on this case have been stored in a seminary library for many years and sealed with this message. These are not to be published through the press or from the pulpit. We're going to start July 17th, 1931. It was early morning in Vatican City. Most people were asleep, including the Pope himself, Pius XI. Oh, okay. His stone-faced papal secretary of state never slept, or so it seemed, as he tackled the papers at his desk at 2 a.m. It was a fraught time to head up Vatican affairs, and the stress took its toll. Pamphlets had circulated the last few days accusing the Pope of being an anti-fascist agitator and calling for his arrest. 
The Vatican bureaucrat was pulling an all-nighter to deal with the fallout. That's when the deafening roar sent him flying from his seat. Vatican City shook. Windows shattered. A powerful explosion reverberated through the air. Thousands of residents ran screaming, some for shelter, others toward the epicenter of the explosion. Vatican officials brandishing torches ran through the dark, passing fig trees that seemed to have been dropped from the sky, uprooted and sprawled unnaturally across the ground. Twisted metal was everywhere. Smoke hung in the air as Vatican police rushed to check on the Pope. With the same urgency, messages were sent to Italy's political leader, Benito Mussolini. There had been 10 popes assassinated in history, but the last had been more than 600 years ago. If Pius turned out to be dead, hell on earth would be unleashed. The police and the papal secretary breathed a sigh of relief to find Pius in his bed. As the melee turned into a frantic hunt for the perpetrators, a faction within the church credited a petite woman named Emma 5,000 miles across the ocean in a depressed farm town of Erling, Iowa, population 350, with saving the Pope's life. The unassuming woman, the subject of a series of dangerous exorcisms, had turned herself into a secret weapon in the war on evil. So now we're going to go back in time a little bit. Going to go back in time. Uh, So Emma (laughs) H. Schmid had brown eyes and a ruddy complexion. She was born in Switzerland shortly before her Catholic parents, Jacob and Anna, farmers, emigrated to the United States. Put to work as a teenager in a factory, likely making dresses, she heard other workers mock religion and stood up in its defense. Her parents also rejected the church. Emma frequently argued with her father and brothers about their lifestyles, and her father emotionally and possibly physically abused her. Emma was belittled, ostracized, and made to feel worthless for the very thing most important to her, her faith. Church was her refuge, a place to get away and envision a better life. Sometimes she attended afternoon and evening services on the same day. She dreamed of becoming a nun. As a young adult, Emma underwent a medical operation. The nature of the operation remains unclear, though it may have been a hysterectomy often prescribed to treat the now-debunked diagnosis of a woman's hysteria, with which Emma was branded. After surgery, things went downhill. Emma's personality changed, particularly in relation to religion. Notes recorded from priests listed some of these behaviors. She threw blessed articles away, smashed crucifixes, and had thoughts of despair. The young woman who had always loved church voiced urges to destroy vessels of holy water and confessed to wanting to strangle her priest. She struggled to control sexual urges. Something dark seemed to rise inside of her. There is something running up the back into the head. Emma tried to describe what she experienced and from there into the heart. Capping her terror, she reported hearing nightly voices coming from below. So, our other main character, Theophilus Xavier Riesinger, was better known to parishioners as Father Theo. Stout, with a dark, heavy beard and wire spectacles, the Bavarian-born priest had served two churches in New York City when he began to answer requests to perform exorcisms on parishioners who believed they were under the control of a demon spirit. Though possessions always claimed a place in church doctrine, some dioceses wanted nothing to do with the concept, and the leaders of Theos drew a line in the sand. The split with the local Catholic authorities ran deep enough to ship him out of the Big Apple. Exiled to Marathon, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, he ministered to a modest church called St. Anthony's. He fit right into the rural ethos. He was the rare priest who could go 
from giving communion and services to wielding an axe to clear land for a new building. Soon after settling at his new post, Father Theo got a word from, ugh, got word from, I don't know why I can't say that word. Soon after settling at his new post, Father Theo got word from Thomas Drum, Bishop of Des Moines, about a strange case. 26-year-old Emma Schmid of Germantown was suffering from disturbing experiences. Theo had met the devoutly religious Emma and her family years before, when she was 16 and Theo was studying theology in Milwaukee. His notes reflect finding her always truthful and obedient, cheerful and companionable, and leading an exemplary life. Uh, Despite the fallout from his possession cases back east, the request to look into such a claim did not faze him. As one of his colleagues, Reverend Father Carl Vogel, later wrote of Theo's state of mind before Emma's case, he had little suspicion that he would meet with the severest experience as yet encountered by him. Father Theo followed Roman ritual, which contained the church-mandated guidelines to diagnose a possession and differentiate it from illness or fraud. I am not so easily convinced that there is a possession, he explained to the Milwaukee Journal in a rare interview. Hundreds of people have been sent to me by priests and laymen who believe that there is a possession. Usually I find otherwise. All right, so now here's where we're going to get into it. So cuddle your animals. Emma's case was another story. She reportedly spoke in voices that weren't hers. Some of the voices coming out of Emma spoke in English or German, languages Emma spoke natively. But Theo and other attendants also documented that some of the voices understood Italian, Polish, Latin, and Hebrew. Emma's Emma's formal education stopped at elementary school, and she did not know these languages. Mm -mm. Apparently, Reverend Vogel, who studied the case at the time, wrote of the voices. They would have understood any language spoken today and would have answered to it. Father Theo even found that certain voices preferred certain languages. During a session one day, Emma appeared to be hurtled across the room. She was a petite 5'7", just 135 pounds, but one priest who was helping and known to be strong as a bear reported being unable to lift her from the ground even with the help of three others. Oh my. Yeah. The priests observed Emma undergoing chilling physical changes. Her abdomen would either move up or down with terrific rapidity beyond the power of a human being or swell up the immense volume of a big barrel Mm-mm. on which no weight would make an impression. Mm-mm. At those times, according to witnesses, the iron rods of the bed bent down to the floor. During trances of possession, attending priests tried to open her eyes, which were shut impossibly tight. Um, FYI, this next part is pretty gross, so I'm just going to warn you guys. When, when they forced her lids open, they said they found a thick yellow skin over the eyes with Ew. something like a big pea seen moving beneath them. Oh, no. When they presented objects secretly blessed or sprinkled with holy water, she foamed at the mouth and became angry. She was indifferent to unblessed objects. Father Theo unleashed a prayer known as the Appeal to St. Michael, recommended by the Vatican as a tool of exorcism, which is, Carry our prayers up to God's throne, that the mercy of the Lord may quickly come, and lay hold of the beast, the serpent of old, Satan and his demons, casting him in chains into the abyss. Classifying the case as a true possession, Father Theo urged Emma to allow him to place her at St. Joseph Parish in Earling. Uh, where she would be cared for by the Franciscan sisters. 
He hoped Earling's isolation would cause he hoped uh, Earling's isolation would conceal her condition from others. I should like to have her brought here since it would create too much excitement in her home. Emma feared what might happen, but agreed. I will come no matter how hard it would be. She wrote in a letter to Father Theo. Now this part is uh, pretty interesting. They put Emma on a train from Wisconsin to Iowa and warned the conductors her behavior could turn on a dime. Not told the nature of the problem, the conductors surreptitiously watched her, walking back and forth in the train car. At some point on the trip, Emma apparently exhibited frightening behavior. Details about the train ride were never revealed, but the conductors came out the other side rattled. Father Theo took a different train to another depot in Iowa. A friend of his, Reverend Joseph Steger, served as pastor at St. Joseph's. Steger, who had a pleasantly placid face with wire-rimmed glasses, drove to meet his colleague, but his car acted up. What should have been a quick drive reportedly took two hours. Once he arrived, Steger could find nothing wrong with the car, and Father Theo waved away his friend's apologies. I would have been much more surprised if everything had gone smoothly, he reassured. The devil will try his utmost to foil our plans. Emma didn't just fear being away from home and the ongoing exorcisms. She feared her own behavior and impulses, of which she no longer seemed to have control. When representatives from the parish met Emma at her station, she regarded them with daggers in her eyes, later confessing an urge to hurt them. At St. Joseph's convent, she wouldn't touch food that had been secretly blessed. When the sisters brought her an otherwise identical serving without the blessing, she ate. The woman who grew up dreaming of becoming a nun was now living in a convent but in a state of semi-captivity under the grimmest circumstances. Only a small circle of trusted people were told what was happening, but keeping Emma's secret proved difficult. Theo's notes indicated that she intermittently roared and bellowed and barked and mauled and moaned and shrieked. Nope. Um, Screams nope. echoed through the neighborhood <laughs> and into the windows. People rushed to the convent asking if someone was being murdered or a pig slaughtered. Oh. Exorcisms were held in a bedroom in the convent. Emma's teeth gnashed as her arms were bound to the bed frame. Theo would begin with the litany of all saints, evoking the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus Christ. When Theo recited the words, Lord, save your people from the persecution of the devil, an agitated voice from Emma moaned and yelped. Uh -uh. The exorcist wished to determine the identity of the spirits. According to doctrine, they had to tell him their names. And in order to expel spirits, he needed to elicit confessions from them. He detected distinct voices, some deep, some raspy or shrill. Some were bestial and still others sounded more human. Theo was intrigued when he heard a feminine voice that was not Emma's and tried to engage. Is there a woman here? Father Theo asked. Yes. I command you to tell me your name, replied the police replied the priest. My name is many, many, many. Answering in threes was common among the voices that presented themselves as malicious spirits through Emma. Are you living or dead? asked Theo. I am dead, said the voice. Minnie had been Emma's aunt on her mother's side and had been believed by the townspeople to be a witch. She was also known as mistress to Emma's father, Jacob. Theo began to believe that Minnie was the one who had made Emma vulnerable to possession. By interviewing Minnie, he thought he could discover the key to the case. 
Are you damned? Yes, I am damned. By one account, Emma, when possessed with Minnie, spit and vomit so much that Theo had to constantly wipe off his cassock. Did you give something to the girl? The priest prodded, by means of which the relation of this girl to the devils was established. I have done that, the voice answered, then acknowledged lacing Emma's food and drink with bewitched herbs years earlier. If the voice was to be believed, the devious secrets of Emma's abusive home life were coming to light. Sorry, she won't stop meowing. Oh, no, you're fine. You're fine, I like it. Uh, Theo concluded Minnie's poisoning created a condition in Emma's body which gave the spirits, as they interpreted it, a satanic right to enter her. Um, Observers noted that during exorcisms, the spirit voices speaking through Emma were particularly hard on on Reverend Steger, another reason he became uncomfortable. Attendees of exorcisms were warned to take confession first because the demonic spirits would try to humiliate them, spilling their secret sins and fears as well as predicting their fates. In one exorcism session, according to Steger, the demonic voice lashed out at him. You will have to suffer for this. Just wait until the end of the week. Father Theo's records of the prediction reflected an even more precise threat than Steger's account. The evil spirit who was in Emma predicted that the auto of a certain priest would be smashed on a definite day when he would be using it on a sick call and that in such a way that no cause would be detected. That Friday, undaunted, Steger visited a sick parishioner. He was surrounded by farmland, the lifeblood of the area. Iowa and the rest of the Midwest was shifting into the era of the Great Depression, with conflicts growing over agricultural prices and productions. There were both milk wars and cow wars on the horizon, complete with militant movements to enforce competing sides. Steger got back on the road in the same new car that had acted up when picking up Father Theo at the train depot. By his own account, a black cloud suddenly appeared before the car as he reached a bridge over a ravine. Mm-mm. As Reverend Carl Vogel relayed Steger's experience, it seemed as if his eyes were blindfolded and the vehicle crashed with an indescribable force, even though Steger had by that point shifted into the lowest gear. The car smashed through a trellis hanging over the ravine, wobbling with the weight of the driver. A farmer who heard the crash rushed over. Father, father, what has happened? Are you hurt? Steger slowly crawled out, frightened nearly to death. He went to a doctor to get checked for injuries and insisted on going straight to Emma. Before he entered the room, a voice from the woman addressing Father Theo roared, I fixed your partner. Steger entered with defiance, saying of the devil, My auto is a complete wreck, but he was not able to harm me personally. The demonic voice coming from Emma replied, be ready for a whole lot more fun. Oh. Among the spirits he believed held Emma in their grip, Theo sought to confront Jacob, Emma's father. I solemnly command in the name of the crucified Savior of Nazareth that you present the father of this woman and that he give me answer. A rough voice grumbled back from Emma. Are you the unfortunate father who has cursed his own child? No. Who are you? I am Judas. The moment was so chilling for the devoutly religious group, Vogler later, ugh, Vogel later described Steger and some of the Franciscan sisters stampeding out of the room. To Father Theo's demands to know Judas's intentions with Emma, the answer came, to bring her to despair, so that she will commit suicide and hang herself. She must get the rope. She must go to hell. 
Between sessions with Father Theo, Emma tried to describe her harrowing experiences. My body, she said, feels as if filled with fire. She gave more details. I am enveloped in dark night as in a cloud. Very many devils are present, hissing in all directions and like flashes of lightning. I see their heads with the fiery eyes. Two gigantic serpents are above me. Emma described a vision of battle in which Lucifer, Beelzebub, and her father Jacob directed legions of devils against St. Michael. In a culture and era in which there is little recourse for domestic violence, Emma claimed to witness an otherworldly battle with the spirit of her abusive father. <clears throat> After contending with the voice who identified itself as Judas, Father Theo tried again to draw out Jacob Schmid, this time making contact. Theo asked, what do you want to do here? The voice replied, I want to lead my child to hell. Theo grew confrontational and protective. You are in hell, but your daughter will never go to hell with you. The voice grew more belligerent. Am I not the father of the child? Can I not do with her as I please? Mm -hmm. The priest carefully observed Emma, who seemed entirely unconscious as he carried out involved interrogations of the other voices. Between sessions, Emma would explain she didn't know what had happened during the exorcisms. Father Theo identified other spirits, including John, a former suitor of Emma's, whose advances she had rejected and who had committed suicide. Here was the novelty of the case that not only jolted Father Theo, but also began to attract intense interest from his superiors both in the Midwest and in Rome. According to the exorcist and the clerical observers, Emma appeared to contain legions or a multitude of spirits, a number Theo eventually tallied as being in the millions. Mm. What? Yeah. Church officials always approached exorcism cases with special caution, and the administration of Pope Pius XI restricted authorizations for who could perform exorcisms. Some within the church found the reports of Father Theo's interactions with Emma impossible to believe. None had heard of anything like it. Some suspected hallucination or outright trickery. Theo had already had his life and career overthrown back in New York because of exorcisms, and Emma's case could invite far more trouble. Theo bolstered his position with eyewitnesses, including Father Steger, who went on record behind the scenes verifying reports. A Milwaukee-based physician studied Emma's convulsions, which he concluded were not due to medical causes. The doctor also observed and verified Emma's knowledge of languages she had never learned. Steger's sister and housekeeper, meanwhile, wrote affidavits attesting to what they had seen, backing up Theo's accounts. And this is where it gets really interesting. Our third main character. The case was further boosted by another woman, a purported spiritual conduit named Teresa Newman, a celebrity among Catholics around the world. Teresa, 29, lived in a small Bavarian village and as a child became partially paralyzed. She had lost and regained her eyesight, according to reports, and claimed to eat only consecrated wafers or bread. She also claimed to experience stigmata, or the spontaneous appearance of wounds similar to those Christ received in the crucifixion. One visitor from India reported Teresa displayed square wounds that went straight through her hands. Worshippers came from all over to see her. Others came to test her, some leaving unconvinced. One German journalist sought out Teresa in order to expose her as a fraud. He ended up so fully enraptured by her, he converted to Catholicism. 
Believers listen closely to her predictions and reports of visions. On December 22, 1927, Teresa told a visiting bishop from Cleveland, In your country there lives a person in whom great things will be done. Father Theo did not initially connect the prediction with Emma, though he read the words to Emma and she later reported hearing a voice at that moment that said, You are that person. A priest based in Buffalo, Reverend Frederick J. Bunce, heard about Father Theo's work and also zeroed in on Emma as being the chosen one prophesied by Teresa. The Cleveland bishop, meanwhile, prodded Teresa whether the person in question was dead. Oh no, she replied, the one I am talking about is alive. She is living in your country and soon great things will be done in her. Then something changed. Emma, it seemed, fought off enough of the demonic spirits to make room for other communication. Through Emma, Father Theo found himself discoursing not only with voices claiming to be the evil legions, but with divine spirits. Emma, or the voices speaking through her, delivered speeches that surpassed the theological understanding expected from a layperson. The priest studying the case concluded that her historical, theological, and scriptural knowledge could not have been acquired or invented by her. Theo and many in the church began to consider Emma a true energumen, 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 um, is basically a powerful vehicle through which to transmit spirits and deliver prophecies. To supporters of Emma's case, the shape of the great things predicted by Teresa Newman came into focus. Demonic voices coming through Emma in late 1928 insisted that the Antichrist had been born and that Judas would possess the human form. Now the voice of Jesus Christ came through Emma and awed those who believed in her case. Father Theo was marked for death. The voice decreed, Your confessor will not live anymore unless I prolong his life. And I will prolong it if it will become necessary. He must prepare the world. The Antichrist will appear quite unexpectedly. It was a frightening twist that threw everyone involved for a loop. Father Theo, then 62 years old, now believed he had been bestowed with one mission, to prepare the world for the Antichrist possibly to stop that ultimate enemy of good. If the prophecy was right, that mission was all that kept him alive. It also meant that every demon he expelled from Emma brought him closer to his life's divinely ordained purpose and to his demise. Mm. What? Yeah. So basically his purpose is to exercise the demons in her and prevent the Antichrist. But once he does it, he'll die. And if he doesn't succeed with doing this, he'll also die. Mm-mm. Yeah. Thanks, Jesus. <laughs> um, <laughs> through the array of voices, demonic and heavenly, Theo identified a larger plan from the afterlife. Lucifer was hatching a scheme to force his way back into heaven, from which he had been expelled at the beginning of time. In order to do so, he relied on the coming of the Antichrist, sending devils through Emma as a kind of support army to take over Earth. Through the first half of 1931, Emma and Teresa's warnings of looming evil crested. One of the priests studying both cases, Reverend Buns of Buffalo, found in the links between the two women a divine purpose, correlating Newman's village and Erling, where Emma was being held. In the Midwest, Emma and Father Theo became a kind of precognition task force for the church, along with Teresa and her entourage of clergymen and worshippers in her tiny Bavarian hamlet. Their cautions were viewed with increased gravity, especially when Teresa gave a stipend to a priest to give a mass for the Pope, saying she feared for his safety. 
The women's urgent messages reached Rome and reached it, many would claim, just in time. The next evening, July 16, 1931, around 7.30 p.m., as the papal secretary of state worked at his desk and Pope Pius slept, the unimaginable happened. Church sextons were inspecting St. Peter's Cathedral in Vatican City, where the Pope often conducted Mass. One found a tin box in a dark corner at the tomb of Pope Clement Thirteenth. Uh, God, I hate Roman numerals. They're so difficult. It's sleepy marble lions keeping watch. On the tomb, a message. Dynamite will blow up this case. Reporter Arnaldo Cortesi, the New York Times foreign correspondent, described the object as a metal cylinder, eight inches long and four inches in diameter, wrapped in paper. A sergeant from the papal police arrived, then guards swarmed. They brought the box, which they determined to be a cocoa tin, to a guard office and examined it. They listened. No ticking, no smoke. A hopeful thought occurred to the investigators. It could be a hoax. They decided to place the box in an open field. They posted guards around the gardens to prevent anyone from getting through the gates. When the bomb exploded in the middle of the night, it left a crater in the ground. Glass and debris flew everywhere. A now antique term for an explosive, infernal machine, was fittingly applied by the press to what seemed to many a war between heaven and hell. An artillery expert was brought in who concluded the bomb was designed to explode as soon as it was lifted from the floor. Had it not been discovered when it was, it would have done far more damage, racking up untold casualties. Remarkably, nobody was hurt. Some thought the fascist Mussolini's party were responsible for the bombing following recent clashes with the Vatican. Others thought it was anti-fascists trying to stir tensions. In a world checkered with bright-line political movements, Vatican officials pointed the finger at communists or terrorists. The bombers were never found, and the case remains unsolved. Yeah. Back in the States on the day of the explosion, Father Theo transcribed a message Emma triumphantly relayed from the Virgin Mary about saving the Pope. My servant, your confessor, gives me joy and I am pleased with his work, namely that for my honor, the welfare of the church and the salvation of souls, so many devils have been cast into hell. It was high time for these devils help to lay the bomb to destroy Rome and kill the Holy Father. Had the devils not been bound before and cast into hell, the bomb would not have been found. The notes written in German by Father Theo and Emma's case file, compiled later by a group of priests, reflect a dramatic conclusion about Emma's role in safeguarding the same pope who had narrowed the scope for exorcisms, a role that had never been revealed publicly. Emma and Teresa, the notes declared, both had their share in the discovery and subsequent harmless expulsion of this instrument of destruction. In fact, it kept disaster from Rome and the Pope. The Pope is free! The Pope is free! Lamented some of the spirits who fled Emma's body, according to Father Theo's transcriptions. With the foiled assassination attempt, Father Theo's hunt to identify the Antichrist through Emma's revelation shifted into high gear. Ha! Taunted one of the evil spirits Father Theo expelled from Emma in the early 1930s. In the year 1952, the Antichrist will begin its reign. Father Theo put together a veritable war room of priests to scour the globe for the Antichrist. In Theo's interpretations of the prophecies that arrived through Emma, he was on borrowed time. He had just long enough to follow Emma's clues and find information on the Antichrist. Intelligence amassed. The human form of the Antichrist was said to be born in 1919, possibly in what was then known as Palestine, and possessed by the spirit of Judas. 
The parents of the Antichrist were said to be a nun of Jewish extraction and a schismatic Catholic bishop. The rule of the Antichrist would start in 1952 when the man would be 33 years old, the same age as Christ when crucified, and his reign would last for three and a half years and include three days of darkness foretold in the Bible. The details gleaned from Emma's possession shocked Father Theo and his allies. They fell almost precisely in line with the prophecies of a 19th century Catholic mystic named Catherine Emmerich, who had predicted the Antichrist reign would come approximately 50 years before 2000. Emmerich was eventually beatified, or officially recognized as blessed by the Vatican. The dark contours of the team's daunting search came into focus. They were looking for an adolescent boy who also happened to be the embodiment of evil. I mean, that's like all of them. I know, I was like, that's going to be difficult to find. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But they had to constantly guard against an insidious possibility that the devil himself was tricking them from inside Emma. Emma, for her part, also confronted a dilemma. The more intelligence she was able to share about the Antichrist with Father Theo, the closer she brought her spiritual guide and confessor to death. Once he was gone, her personal fight against her possessions would almost certainly be lost. The Global Brotherhood of Priests provided a powerful network of investigators. Father Theo could dispatch surrogates anywhere in the world to follow leads, and those clerical surrogates were respected and welcomed into homes, businesses, and governments. They could question suspected antichrists and match up their personal details with the information obtained through Emma. In Russia, there is a boy named Mikhail whose past was cloudy. He was the 17th child born to his parents, who didn't stay in one place for long. Now, just the right age, he was at a remote tractor station in Siberia and showing signs of being a prodigy inventing dangerous weapons. Catholic priests had been rounded up in Russia at that time. Many never heard from again, and any surrogates sent by Father Theo had to operate covertly, and even then risk their lives. Mikhail would go on to invent the AK-47, one of the most destructive assault weapons in history with 1952 its first full year on the mass market. Wow. Then there was an inconspicuous adolescent boy of the same age, Georgios, living in a small Mediterranean village who was being specially groomed for a military career. Georgios went on to lead a coup and become the ruthless dictator of Greece. Damn. One of the priests Father Theo recruited in his quest heard an odd announcement on the Columbia Broadcast Company by newscaster Edwin C. Hall on September 26, 1932, at 8.15 p.m. The priest scrambled to write it down word for word. Oh, sorry, my throat is so dry. There is a 12-year-old boy in Jerusalem connected with the second coming of Christ. The age was exactly right for the Antichrist. The priest rushed to relay the information to Father Theo, but when they contacted Hill, the newscaster did not have the recording of the newscast and apparently did not remember saying it. They had plenty of allies who could search Jerusalem, but not enough to go on. They felt foiled by dark forces. Meanwhile, despite Father Theo's vigor, the exorcisms wore on him physically and mentally. There were times he worked around the clock, even though nuns who worked in shifts were breaking down. He became so exhausted he couldn't recite the prayers and ritual texts, and at one point he was described as a walking corpse. Steger's housekeeper recalled that all the nuns involved in the exorcisms requested and eventually received transfers. They all hoped for a reprieve, but Teresa Newman predicted the worst was still to come for her American counterpart. The lady will be possessed again. 
After falling into a trance, Teresa had visions of Emma's possessions and exorcisms and said she never wished to see such things again. It was too painful, too terrifying. Emma endured such physical difficulty during her exorcisms that she was given last rites by the nuns in attendance. Father Vogel described a distorted appearance with Emma's pale, death-like, and emaciated head as red as glowing embers. Her eyes, lips, and body appeared so bloated that nuns reportedly backed away in fear that the possessed woman would somehow birth into pieces. By his own estimation, Father Theo had made progress. Every devil and damned soul he cast out of Emma was one less soldier in the Antichrist army. The voice of one devil complained that hell cannot afford to send more devils for the fight, and Theo reported Lucifer personally begged for the exorcisms to end. Theo had his sights on expelling Lucifer and Beelzebub as the leaders of the evil spirits. As his ally, Reverend Bunce, put it, Lucifer had to go. It had come come down to an ultimate confrontation between Father Theo and evil. The small room was packed with nuns and assistants. Theo deployed his full arsenal of commands and prayers with special objects hidden under his frock. A pix, or container, holding the Blessed Sacrament, and a relic believed to have been part of the cross on which Christ was crucified. An assistant stood by to wipe perspiration from Theo's face and forehead, which pooled down in rivulets on the floor. He had to take breaks to change his habit. Out-of-body visions were not limited to Emma. Father Theo described a particularly striking vision he experienced. The room suddenly bursting into flames. Lucifer, a crown on his head, holding a sword of fire, approached. He was flanked by his right hand, Beelzebub. Lucifer threatened Theo, but confessed his powers had been weakened. Lucifer seemed to take the measure of the priest as they stared each other down. What could you do, the evil incarnate asked, if you were as bound as I am. When Theo ordered Lucifer back to hell, the voice coming from Emma complained, does he not know that I must prepare the way for the Antichrist? How then can he banish me into hell? Theo's notes claimed that as the countless demonic spirits exited, they went through the hands as a rule, also through the feet. The spirits begged the exorcist not to force them to leave. Observers described Emma's arms dislodging from their bindings and away from attendants' attempts to hold her down. Voices cried out, Beelzebub, Judas, Jacob, Mina, hell, hell, hell. With the worst of the spirits banished, Emma's body lifted nearly to a standing position, arms out. In a flash, her body was reported to be carried through the air. Theo said it was as if she were floating and clung to a wall above the door. Except for the war-scarred Father Theo, those present trembled with terror. The real fight they all knew was Emma's to win or lose. Theo shouted, pull her down. She must be brought back to her place upon the bed. Then her body sank down with an exhale of relief. It took an hour before Emma regained consciousness. Oh, Jesus, she said when she woke. Dear Jesus, I am free. Oh, Jesus, I love you. Oh, Jesus, let me die. She smiled brightly, and it seemed like the first time she had smiled in ages. The group in the room with Emma erupted into sobs and cheers and prayers. Our joy was exceedingly great, Father Theo later wrote, still filled with emotion. We thanked God for our victory over hell. But Emma's liberation, as the priest called Emma's freedom, was short-lived, lasting only a few days. 
She continued to require exorcisms, some in Iowa and some in Wisconsin. Though surviving records do not reveal exactly how long these went on. This case will continue until Christ says it is enough, Father Theo lamented at one point. He was determined to keep her identity secret to prevent the hordes of followers of the sword Teresa Newman attracted. This was wise. Only a few years later, Teresa Newman had a vision of Adolf Hitler's downfall, and there were rumors that Hitler, hearing this, became obsessed with her, having her monitored. Fritz Gerlich, a German journalist who became one of Newman's devoted followers, used the inspiration of Teresa's visions to resist Hitler. The Fuhrer had him killed. Father Theo worked with Emma for 30 years, from the time she was in her mid-20s to her mid-50s, eventually referring to her as my mystic, a tribute to how what he saw as prophetic visions on her part shaped his life. By the later stages of his role as her spiritual guide, Time magazine described the once ready priest as wise and white-haired. The exorcisms left a chasm between Theo and his longtime friend, Reverend Steger, at one point leading Steger to angrily confront his fellow priest. Theo was not surprised by this sad turn, understanding better than anyone how much the exorcisms robbed from those involved. Speaking with another friar, Theo was very clear on his plan for Emma's story. Father, as to my exorcisms, I have not published a single word, nor have I asked any person to publish a single word for me, but I have sent a complete account of all that has happened to the Holy See. Rome alone is competent to judge. Until Rome speaks, I shall be silent." Even as Emma's identity was carefully guarded, rumors spread of the terrible sights and sounds the exorcisms produced, supposedly prompting waves of converts who wanted to expel their sins to stave off possession. Reverend Vogel worked with Reverend Steger Steger, to publish a pamphlet with an account of some of Emma's exorcisms, with only fragments of her larger story, using a pseudonym for her. The pamphlet led to an upsurge in fear of possession. Father Theo kept to his word about his own much more extensive records, which were in German and organized in manuscript form by several other priests, and kept all these years from public view. Indications suggest Emma eventually shook off the need for more treatment from the church, and after her part in the epic paranormal battles, went on to her greatest triumph, a quiet, private life on her own terms. The end. Damn. Yeah. So there, okay, happy ending, I guess, somewhat. That was intense. That was a lot. <laughs> you are, yeah, I know. I know. It's like, it's not just an exorcism. It's because of a witch. And also the Antichrist is coming. And yeah, also exactly. the Antichrist probably did come. The Antichrist is here. He's asleep upstairs in my house. <laughs> That's not true. All right, this one I have to tell you it's very short. It's very depressing. There's no happy ending, and it's based on a true story. Okay. All right, so buckle up, kids. If you're sensitive to suicide, you should probably stop listening, and I love you very much. So, this story is called Lavender Town Syndrome. Have you guys heard of it? No. Okay. Um, So, the Lavender Town Syndrome, also known as Lavender Town Tone, or Lavender Town Suicides, was a peak in suicides and illnesses of children between the ages of 7 to 12, shortly after the release of Pokemon Red and Green in Japan on February 27, 1996. 
Rumors say that these suicides and illnesses only occurred after the children playing the game reached Lavender Town, whose theme music had extremely high frequencies that studies showed only that children and young teens could hear. Due to the Lavender Tone, at least 200 children supposedly committed suicide, and many more developed illnesses and afflictions. The children who committed suicide usually did so by hanging or jumping from heights. Those who did not act irrationally complained of severe headaches after listening to the theme. Although Lavender Town now sounds differently depending on the game, this mass hysteria was caused by the first Pokemon game released. After the Lavender Tone incident, the programmers had to fix Lavender Town's theme music to be at a lower frequency, and since then, the children were no longer affected by it. One video appeared in 2010 using special software to analyze the audio of Lavender Town's music. When played, the software created images of the unknown near the end of the audio. This raised a controversy since the unknown didn't appear until the Generation 2 games Silver, Gold, and Crystal. It translates to Leave Now. There is also the said beta version of Lavender Town, which you can still play. It is said that the beta version of Pocket Monsters was released to some kids to test the games. Suicide rates peaked again. This is a video of the beta version of Lavender Town, and there's like a video where you can watch it, and then at the end, it's like, um, soon after this game was released, parents and schools everywhere were trying to get kids to stop playing it because the children would be complaining of headaches all day and talk nonsensically, talking about how they wanted to die. And that's that. Oh, my God. So they fixed it, and then they started it up again, and it happened again. Yeah, and then they were like, in case you were wondering, here's the beta. And you can also, like, listen to it on YouTube. It's pretty weird. I don't want to. No. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not suggesting it. I'm just saying that you can do it. You go listen to it. Um, no. Why not? <laughs> because, well, I'll go. I'm not 7 to 12, and I have really terrible hearing. But. for it. I thought that was really crazy. Oh, man. I bet it's like the Yanny and Laurel thing. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Where like some people can hear it and some people can't. Yeah, apparently it has to do with how old you are. Like older people hear Yanny and I think younger people hear Laurel. And it has to do with, I don't know, your ears getting older maybe? Yeah, I don't know. Or like, or on a happier note, it's like the Christmas bell in, um... That one story. Polar Express. Oh, yeah. Where when you get older, you can't hear the jingle bell anymore. Mm -hmm. Except in this time, you get older and you don't want to kill yourself because of uh, a rat-a-tat. Just maybe like everything else. (laughs) Just everything else about our current existence. (laughs) Don't worry, kids. It's going to get better. Stay inside. Play Pokemon. Maybe turn the volume down. No, turn it all the way out. Whoa. Katie, no. (laughs) Katie, no. Yeah, just, you know, stay six feet apart from people. If you're walking in a park with people and there's a sidewalk and people are coming from the opposite direction, maybe get single file instead of walking side by side so you can maintain social distancing. 
Not, you know, speaking from angry personal experience or anything, but, you know, that would be cool if people could do that. Please. And also, maybe, since the CDC said so, wear a mask. Also, wash your hands. Also, don't cough on people. Also, if you can help it, stay inside your fucking house so I can drink margaritas on the patio. Oh, my God. That's, like, the first thing Pat and I are doing. I mean, I want a margarita from Midway, and I want it. (laughs) All right, kids. Well, Grandma Katie's got to go night-night. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. I got to go night-night, too. Jesus. Okay. All right. Bye, y'all. Wash your hands. Stay six feet away. Uh, Don't try whatever drugs Orange Man Bad tells you to try because he's wrong. And uh, listen to Dr. Fauci because he actually knows what he's talking about. Yes. All right. I love you guys. I like you guys. Wow. Wow. My love is my love is hard one. I've been around for a long ass time. <laughs> no, 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 no. I meant um the listeners. I love oh, you guys. Okay, I was yeah, talking, I, yeah, I was telling you guys I love you guys, not the listeners. Oh. Fuck those guys. I'm just kidding. Love you guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's let Katie get to bed. Wash your hands. Be safe. We'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. Okay, bye. bye. Love anybody I would like to live. I do that. I just want to do God's will. Just to go. But I want you to know that.